If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to Genesis chapter 17. And if you're using one of the the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you or in the chair underneath you, if you just want to turn to page 11, that's kind of where chapter 17 starts. So far, we are about halfway through. We've been doing this sort of journey through the life of Abraham, and this morning we're kind of at the halfway point. And if we were to describe sort of the first half of the the journey, it's been a little bumpy for Abram and Sarah. That's kind of what they're known as at this point, the first half of the journey. God made some incredible promises to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and that kind of led them, Abraham and Abram and Sarai, to, to leave where they were and to go into the land God said He'd show them. And that was a great start, and it's like, here we go, all these good things are going to happen. Well, when they got into that land and they started to kind of wander around in the, what was known as the promised land, they made a lot of poor choices. We've kind of looked at some of those, and unfortunately, as we go farther in the story, there's still going to be some more poor choices. But they they made some choices, and those choices really complicated their lives, and not just complicated their lives, but literally, as we looked at last week, complicated really every generation since then has paid a price, has had to deal with what Abram and Sarai did. It made things a little tougher. Now, in one sense, to to be fair to them, because of the time that had passed from when God made those promises to to where we are in this story, and there was a lot of waiting involved, and we talked about waiting last week, not only did they make poor choices because of that, but they also struggled to a measure with with doubt. They really wondered, God, are you ever going to do this? Are you ever going to restore things? Are you ever going to do this? And in fairness to Abram, we saw Abram in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Trust God. I mean, literally, that's what the verse says. He trusted God. And so he's looking to God and saying, God, I'm putting basically all my eggs, so to speak, in your basket. I'm trusting that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. But he hadn't really experienced it yet hadn't really seen much restoration taking place yet. And we've said, and we'll say it again today, that really the the part of the story, sort of the point of the story of Abraham, really the point of the Bible from Genesis 12 forward is that God restores things, is that God works and moves to bring back what He intended, and yet it hasn't happened yet. And so you kind of have to begin to ask the question, if they hadn't experienced restoration yet, what needs to happen so they do? What needs to happen so Abram experiences some restoring work of God in his life? And maybe for us, if we read this story, maybe the question becomes, what needs to happen for us to experience restoration? We say that's the story of the Bible. What needs to happen so we experience it? This morning what we are going to do is we're kind of jumping into a longer story and really what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on just kind of the first chunk of it in Genesis chapter 17, the first part, the first half of Genesis 17 and just kind of that story. And really in the first part of Genesis 17 there's kind of a, a big idea or a big point of verse 17 and really that big point is about how do you and I experience restoration. So in one sense if you're looking for this is what you need in the message, here's kind of the 
the whole thing in a very short thing. If you and I want to experience restoration, want to know that in our lives, the big idea is we need to respond to the truth. Okay, if you want to experience restoration, you want that to be a part of your life, you need to respond to the truth. Now, to get us started in this story, look with me in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, to put this in time, we've gone 13 years after Genesis 16. So we looked at Genesis 16 last week. Now we've moved forward 13 more years. So the wait that we talked about last week just got prolonged. In fact, it had now doubled in a bit. The wait continued to go on. But God is saying here in verse 1 that, Abram, the wait's about to end. See, what I want you to do, Abram, is I'm calling, if you want to experience restoration, I'm calling you to do something. Now, the starting point of this whole idea of restoration from God's viewpoint starts with the words, I am God Almighty. That's the starting point. See, we said that really if you want to experience restoration, you need to respond to the truth. And when we talk about truth, please understand we are not talking about a philosophical concept. Okay, we're not sitting in a university kind of a setting saying, well, what is truth? It's not a philosophical thing. When the Bible is, in this sense, talking about truth, it's not talking about a concept. It's talking about a person. It's talking about a personal being. You see, when God says He is God Almighty, He is saying, I am truth. All of life needs to respond and and deal with the fact that God is God Almighty. When God says He's Almighty, He's saying some huge things about Himself, things we need to wrestle with. I mean, in one sense, you could say He is telling us that He is the God who has the power and the ability to do what He wants and what He desires. He's the Almighty. You could say that when it says He is the Almighty, that He will not be thwarted by anyone or anything. Nothing can stop God. To go back, and, and this, after church, I'm going to leave and go visit my parents for a couple of days, and one of the things that used to be a part of the park, my parents' house backs onto a park, and they had monkey bars. I don't know if you guys know what monkey bars are. Thank you for indulging me there. What we used to play on the monkey bars was the game King of the Castle. So when God says, I am God Almighty, if you want to translate it back to my growing up years in the park, God is saying He is the ultimate King of the castle. There is nobody above Him. There is nobody over Him. He is always Almighty. Now, there's an implication in that you and I should not miss. And the implication is if He is God Almighty then at some point, you and I are going to have to face up to Him. We are going to have to deal with Him, and we will have to be accountable for Him because He is God Almighty. And restoration starts with the truth. That's who He is. And we need to respond to that, though. God is saying, hey, if you want to experience restoration, Abram, you need to respond to the truth, and the truth you need to respond to is I'm Almighty. 
And if God truly is almighty, that's what it says, then the response God calls for, the right response, is for us then to walk before God in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. God says, walk before me and be blameless. I'm God almighty, so here's what you should do. Now, in making this clear, we need to say some things. Being blameless doesn't mean we're perfect. Okay, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is we are to walk in relationship with God in a way that is honoring to God. If we wanted to paraphrase verse 1 and kind of add it into the whole context of the story, God is saying, hey, Abram, remember back in Genesis 15, 6, you trusted me. What I want you to do is I want you to live based on that being true. I want you to live that you and I are in a trust relationship. You've trusted me, so let's live. Let you live your life in a way that that's true, that your life is shaped by the fact that you and I are in this relationship, that you trust me, that you trust God Almighty. Now, here's a question. Why would God ask Abram to walk that way? Why is he saying walk in a way that displays that you trust me? Or to put it into maybe our lives, why would you and I want to respond to God by walking with Him? Why would we do that? Look at verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God is asking Abram to respond by walking with Him, respond to the truth that God's Almighty by walking with Him Because it's through that response of walking with God that God is going to bring His restoring things into Abram's life and going to bring restoring things through Abram's life. Now, verse 2 can be a little tricky because it uses the expression, make my covenant. And we could think, oh, God's talking about starting a covenant. No, He's really not. See, the covenant started back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Abram trusted God. What make my covenant really means is Abram is being told by God, if you do this, you're going to begin to experience all that I have for you. All these restoring things that I promised you I was going to do, here's how you're going to experience them. As you walk with me, as you respond to who I am and do what I'm calling you to do. See, the point of verse 2 is here's how you get in on the experience. Abram, if you walk before God, If you live life following me and being connected to me, that restoration stuff is going to flow in your life. Big idea. You respond to the truth. You respond to me, which means you're going to walk before me. All this is going to begin to flow in your lives. How does Abram respond? Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. In an act of worship, in an act of submission, Abram falls on his face. Now, the last time God and Abram had a conversation back in Genesis 15, God said some things to Abram, and how did Abram respond? He responded by complaining. This time, Abram stops. He doesn't complain. He submits. He submits himself to God. But you'll notice that's not all of verse 3, because all of verse 3 says what? Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him. Abram was exposed to the big point. 
But there was more that God wanted to say. There's more about restoration that God wanted to communicate to Abram. See, verses 1 and 2 kind of do offer the big experience of restoration. You want to get in on restoration, the big experience is simply this. What? You respond to the truth. But God didn't just want to offer the big picture. He does offer the big picture. But now he wants to color it in, or maybe you could say he wants to give some more of the detail. He's not just saying, hey, here's what I want. He's going to give us some detail, some things we can latch on to. Another way to say it is he wants to unpack this restoration thing for Abram by highlighting what I would say are two key things. Okay, saying here's the big picture, respond to the truth, but he wants to color that in. So he says here's two key things that are going to be a part of that. Okay, two key things are going to be a part of restoration. Key number one that's a part of restoration is that lives are changed by God's favor. When we talk about restoration and we talk about responding to God's truth, responding to the truth, responding to God himself, lives are going to be changed by God's favor. If you do what God says, you trust him and you walk with him, your life gets changed. See, verse 2 really is kind of telling us, I mean, in verse 2, God was saying to Abraham, I've got things I'm going to bring into your lives. There's things I'm going to do to to bless you. And God wants to unpack that. He wants to say, this is what restoration looks like. And the way he does it is by saying, there's sort of three components that are a part of a changed life. There's three things that God's committing himself to do, in essence, he's going to add into their lives, into Abram and Sarai's lives. Okay, key num- or component number one, what's God going to do, what's he going to add, is God's going to give a new name. God's going to give Abram a new name. Verses four and five. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Okay, the unfolding of restoration means Abram's life is going to be profoundly changed. Okay, now realize he's 99 years old. Okay, so God's going to take this 99-year-old man that has one son. Okay, Ishmael, he's got one son. And God said, Abram, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a multitude of nations. You, a multitude of nations are going to come from you. Now, to help Abram kind of grasp some of that, help Abram kind of understand some of that, God says, we need to change your name. Now, the name Abram means exalted father. Something like that, we think. Exalted father. But the name Abraham means father of multitude or father of multitudes, okay? He's saying, I want to give you a new name to really connect that your life is changed. You're not an exalted father. You're more than that. You are now the father of a multitude. You're going to be the father of nations. But when we talk about changing his name, it's more than just adding a couple of letters, okay? Taking a proper noun and add a few more letters so you get another word. No, God wanted Abram to understand that by responding to the truth, by by trusting God and by walking in a relationship with God, Abram had a new identity. He wasn't who he was. He was a new person. 
He's Abraham. Now, there's a huge implication in God changing the name and giving a new identity that I don't want us to miss. I think it's important for us to understand. Too many of us across the spectrum struggle with our identities. I had a conversation this week with a guy, and what struck me was in the conversation, I'd never met this person before, but we were just kind of met and, and, and just talking, and I realized he's struggling with his identity. We do it. Not only do we struggle with our identities, but a lot of times, a lot of us struggle with our pasts. None of us are perfect. And the truth is, if we went across this room and we knew it was completely anonymous, no one else would ever know. My guess is if I went person by person through each section, there's a lot of regrets in this room. A lot of things you wish you had never done. You wish that wasn't a part of your life. For some of us, the past can be like an 800-pound gorilla that's always there. I've watched people in situations react in a way, and I wonder, why did they react that way? I've watched myself react in situations like, why did I do that? It's one of those, why did I do that? Well, part of it is because sometimes it feels like when somebody looks at me, all they see is my past, and they see all my mistakes. They've never met me before, but they seem to look at me when they know all my past. And you look at Abram's life, and does he have some regrets? I'm kind of thinking offering his wife to Pharaoh is something he probably regrets. I'm thinking sleeping with Hagar might be something, at least a little bit, that he probably regrets. I mean, if your wife is calling for God to curse you, that might be a hint that that wasn't your best day. Okay? Just... Just suggesting that. Okay, there was things he regretted. But that's not the whole story of life. That's not the whole story of Abram. Huge implication coming out of verses 4 and 5 is you get a new identity. When you trust God, what happens? You get a new identity. Which means if you trust God the Son, if you've come to that place in life where you're trusting the Lord Jesus as your Savior, please know this. You get a new identity. You're not what you were. You are a new creature in Christ. You have a new identity. And if you and I begin to live out of that new identity, live from that identity, we walk before God, we walk to respond to the truth of who He is and live that new identity, guess what? We begin to experience restoration. We begin to experience the work of God in our lives because I've got a new identity. We're not Abram. We're Abraham. We're new people in Christ. Restoration starts to be experienced when you and I live from our new identity, 
not the old stuff. Component number two, what else does God add into life? Well, what God also adds is he makes us a part of God's big plan. God makes us a part of his big plan. Okay, look at verse six and verse eight with me. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. God is speaking to Abraham. I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Verse 8, and I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Okay, God's plan's kind of big, and He's kind of laying out in one sense, here's the details of my plan. Here's some chunks that are a part of my plan. One of the chunks that's a part of my plan, God would say, is there's going to be a lot of people. There's going to be nations. So God says, I'm going to add nations. And Abram, not only am I going to have nations, but there's going to be leaders. There's going to be kings. And not only is there going to be kings, but there needs to be physical space. There needs to be land. So my kingdom's going to have people and leaders and land. All of that. But if you look and you notice what's happening in verses 6 and 8, God says, Abram, I'm going to make you fruitful. In essence, I'm going to make you a great nation. Nations. And not only am I going to do that through your fruitfulness, but I'm also going to bring kings from you. And I'm also going to bring land. I'm going to give you land. God's committing to all do all those things. But here's what I want you to notice. Not only did God commit to do all those things, but think about it for a second. How God committed to do all those things was, how was Abram going to be, now Abraham, going to be exceedingly fruitful? He had to participate. If there was going to be kings, Abram had to participate. And if they were going to have land, if you, were, if you were connected to Central in some sense three years ago, you might remember three years ago right now we did a study through the book of Joshua, which was the story of Abraham's descendants going into the land, taking the land. Now God promised it, God did it, in one sense they received it, but they also participated You see, a part of how God changes a life is, yes, God promises, I'm going to do these things, but He often makes the promise saying, come be a part of it. Be involved in this. Abram, be fruitful. I'm going to make it happen. But you need to participate. You need to be involved in what I'm going to do. God does change our lives. But He calls us to experience it by participating with him. In essence, God is saying, take your new identity and live that out. Do those things and look what happens. None of us are going to experience restoration in our lives if we passively sit around and do nothing. It won't happen. Now, as a church we have said, hey, there's four things, sort of four core values we hope will become true in everyone's life that's connected to Central. One of those truths is we hope that we will all encourage others to follow Jesus. Now, part of the reason why we say we want to encourage others to follow Jesus is because that's what the Bible says. That's what God calls us to. God says, I want people to follow me. 
But the amazing thing is, is how is it possible for another, how is it possible for a person to follow Jesus? By somebody else encouraging them to follow Jesus. By somebody else taking the story of Jesus and sharing it. And the amazing thing is that happens if you share the story of Jesus with somebody else, all of a sudden their life can be changed. But can I also tell you something? If you do what God asks, if you begin to tell and encourage others to follow Jesus, one of the things that will undoubtedly happen is you will begin to experience, look at all that God has done for me. There's something transformative that happens in us as we participate with God in his big plan. God is calling Abram to be a part of his big plan. And if you want to experience restoration, it doesn't come by you and I just going, well, I'm really glad God made some promises. Wonder what's on ESPN today. ESPN is losing ratings. I pray it's losing ratings because more of God's people are involved in God's plan. I don't think that's necessarily the reason But folks, we should reduce some things in our lives so we participate in God's plan because he's inviting us. How do you experience the restored life of God? By participating in his big plan. Third component, how does God change a life? Partly it's a new identity, partly it's we got a new role, we're doing some things. But the third component is that God is your God. That God truly is your God. I want you to notice with me the end of verse 8, end of verse 7, end of verse 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice this, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Okay, big drop back, big story of the Bible. Very simply, we were created to have a relationship with God. That's how we were created. But from the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and sort of almost the parallel experience, the sin of Abram and Sarai in Genesis 16 to our own probably personal experience and our sin, what do we do? We do exactly what they did. We want to be independent of God. We want to do our own thing. We want to call our own shots. We want to be separated from God. And the problem is when we sin, that's exactly what happens. We are separated from God. But part of the amazing good news of the Bible is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be reconnected to God. We can be reconciled to God. When a person turns from sin to God and trusts the Lord Jesus as his or her Savior, all of a sudden we are reconciled to God. We we are back in a relationship with Him. And really, folks, we, we maybe don't always realize it, but the only way to truly live is the way you were designed to live. And we were designed to live in a relationship with Him. We desperately need him. And what God is saying, when I change your life, I say, I'm going to be your God. I am this committed for you to have everything you should have. I'm committed to you to have the best. And that means being in relationship with me. 
God's saying, I'm going to do this. You've trusted me, so I want you to live life knowing I'm here with you. Now, another one of our core values, mentioned one core value, another one of our core values is that we love God. We want to be people who love God. Here's the thing. If you and I begin to live in a way where we truly do love God, when we say love God, what are we talking about? We're talking about our lives should be so devoted to God that everything else kind of is not as important. It falls in its place. It's where it should be, but God is our ultimate. To go back to our greater than series, nothing is greater in our lives than God. He truly is our greater than. If God is truly our God, we begin to experience a restored life, and part of that happens as you and I say, strive to love God, not other things. We can experience a restored life. Okay, back up for a second. Big idea of this whole passage is you respond to the truth. Part of responding to the truth, part of what happens when you respond to the truth, key number one, is that God's going to change your life. And he changes it by giving you a new identity. He changes it by saying, here's things I need you to do. You need to participate in what I'm doing. And also, you need to live with me as your God. Then you truly live. That's key number one. But there's a second key if we're going to respond to the truth, and that is we need to be expressing commitment. Okay, we need to be expressing commitment. Okay, if the big idea of restoration is that you respond to the truth, you kind of expect God might say there's some things you need to do, Abraham. I mean, God said walk before me, so there's some things God was expecting him to do. Well, verses 9 to 14 kind of unpack some of that. So read with me that paragraph, that chunk. And God said to Abraham... As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It is a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, very simply, what's God doing? God's calling Abram to express his commitment through circumcision. Now, to understand something, God was not putting something new on Israel in terms of no one had ever done before. This is not an exclusive thing to Israel. Okay, other cultures, not all cultures, but other cultures in that time frame, in that era, did circumcision. Usually they did it related to puberty or related to marriage. But that's not the reason God's asking him to do it. He's not saying, hey, you know, on your wedding, before you get married, you got to do this kind of a thing. No, that's not why. They were doing it for God covenant reasons. So look again, verse 11, just to kind of focus, why were they supposed to do it? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. In essence, what he's saying, what Moses is writing here, what God had said 
This to Abraham is the idea of circumcision of, based on verse 11 is Abraham was really affirming the commitment he had made in faith in Genesis 15, 6. He's saying, you did that, Abraham, now I want you to express that commitment. I want you to do something to express that, something to communicate that in a sense. In essence, God, I trust you, and this is a reminder that I do trust you. I'm going to do this. Now, responding to the truth, back up for a second, responding to the truth is going to require us to express commitment. Okay, you can't respond to the truth and do nothing. You've got to express commitment. Question becomes, how do we do that today? Okay, scholars and everyday people have scratched their heads over what do you do with this circumcision thing? What does that have to do with today? Now, I know we don't have a lot of time left before the service is supposed to end. So I'll be honest, I cannot deal with every question, yet alone list every question that comes up with what do we do with the circumcision thing. So what I want to do is very quickly, I just want to say a couple of things about circumcision and then on the practical side say, how can we express commitment today? What might that look like? Okay, so circumcision, to put it in the big story of the Bible, a couple of things very quickly. One is that circumcision really was meant to be a sign of the covenant. Okay, it wasn't meant to be the thing that people trusted as making them righteous. Please understand that a physical act is not the issue. A physical act does not make you right before God. Okay, whatever that physical act is, it doesn't do it. Now, the challenge is from the time of Abraham forward, and we see this as we read through the whole Scriptures, New Te- or Old Testament into the New Testament, is a lot of people began to think, if I'm circumcised, then I'm good. I just do this act and I'm covered. Everything is good. No. God's concern is never the physical act. God's concern is always what's going on inside the person behind the act. In essence, what's going on in their hearts? What's going on in their souls? If you were to read verses like Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, you would see that. If you were to read Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to 29, you would see that. If you read Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, or Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, you'd see God's big concern isn't a physical act. It's what's taking place in the heart. Another thing related to circumcision, so it's not the physical act, another thing we need to understand is that we, we're fairly confident based on what Scripture does. Jesus never says, hey, express your commitment to me by being circumcised. He suggests other things, but not circumcision. It seems like circumcision did a role and played a role, but now there's something beyond it. Now there's something different. So what is that? How can you and I express commitment to God in terms of restoration? Let me be very clear. I'm going to offer you two ideas, but these are Lloyd's ideas. Okay, so if you don't like them, that might mean you're wrong. (laughs) Might, might, might. But these are two things that I think biblically I can back up to a measure that I think would be significant. Okay? But this is Lloyd. This is not a whole bunch of theologians and all of that. Okay? So 
little bit personal, but I think there's value in it. Okay, one would be, and there is some backing on this. Okay, one way you and I could express commitment in this way would be to be publicly baptized as an expression of our commitment. Okay, if you've never been publicly baptized, part of the reason why we do baptisms and why we do them publicly is for people to express their commitment to God. Okay, in some ways, if you look at this story in Genesis chapter 17, when Abram fell on his face in verse 3, before he became Abraham, when he submitted himself, that's really what baptism in some ways is. When we do a baptism, you'll hear us say the words, we baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We say that as a declaration. When you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're putting yourself under the umbrella of God's authority. Okay, that's why I say that's a good way to start responding to the truth by saying, God, I recognize you are God Almighty. Second way, how can you respond? Baptism is kind of a one-time thing. It's not something we do all the time. It's a one-time thing. How do you do it on an ongoing basis? I mean, verse 2 says we're to walk before Him. How do we do it? Let me suggest this, that you embrace our core values, that you embrace and live out our core values. Okay, Jesus lived life a certain way. In our core values, we hope we're capturing to live lives like Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus live? Well, Jesus lived loving God. I need to strive to love God. Jesus lived trusting the Bible. I need to strive to trust the Bible. Jesus, belie- Jesus lived believing God answered prayer. I need to strive then to believe God answers prayer. And Jesus lived encouraging others to follow Jesus. So guess what? I need to strive to encourage others to follow Jesus. I need to do that. That needs to be a part of my life. Now let me try and wrap this message up, kind of finish it all off. Tie it back together. Experiencing restoration, to go back to the big idea, experiencing restoration starts with the truth. It's a response to the truth. It starts with the truth. In Genesis 17:1, we learned that the truth had a title, God Almighty. If we read farther into the Bible, we will learn from John chapter 14, verse 6, not only does truth have a title, God Almighty, truth has a name, Jesus. Which means we need to know about Jesus to respond. We need to know the truth. What's the truth? Well, in a very compact form, the truth is this, that Jesus was sent by his Father to come to the earth, to die on the cross for our sins in our place and to rise again so that we could be reconciled to God. Okay, that's Jesus. That's the truth. So a huge question to ask is, what are you doing with Jesus? If you and I are going to experience restored lives, we've got to deal with Jesus, so what are we doing with him? Maybe the most logical first question that comes out of that, given what Jesus, who he is and what he did for us, is have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? That really is the starting point of restoration. Everything we are talking about, you've got to deal with the truth, and it starts there. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. You see, when you and I trust Jesus, if you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you get a new identity. One of the ways the Bible describes that is we go from being identified as darkness 
to being light in the Lord. And according to Ephesians 5.8, we are to now live based on that identity. We are to respond to that and live out that way. So to make sense of this message, let me ask the question, are you living as a child of light? I mean, if you want to experience restoration, you need to trust Jesus, and then you need to walk in Him, you need to live as a child of light. Restoration flows out of your new identity. Are you living your true identity in Christ? God makes an incredible offer to us. Restored lives in Jesus. But he makes the offer and we've got to respond. How are you responding? How are you responding? One of my friends has pointed out to me numerous times. He said, we might say something at the end of a message sort of challenging people and then you're going to pray and the service is going to end and we're all going to be thinking about lunch. And by the time we get to those doors, we've totally forgotten it. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Every day this week, starting today, every day this week, I want to ask you to ask God, God, how am I responding? Not just in a moment, oh, I think I'm responding. No, every day, God, how am I responding? Part of the reason I'm asking you to do that is because that might lead you and I to have great celebrations when God says, you are responding well, and we should praise God. But maybe God is going to say you're not responding well. God's going to point out we need to respond to Him. And folks, what that does then is that opens up the opportunity for us to repent and us to respond properly and for us to experience what God has. So this message doesn't end when I say amen. This message ends as you and I respond and we enjoy all that God has for us. Again, how are you responding? God has it waiting for you. How are you going to respond? Let's pray.